Would you turn with me to Psalm 110? This psalm is either quoted or alluded to 26 times in the New Testament. There's no other psalm that is alluded to this many times, and I think that that should give us some idea of the importance of Psalm 110. Now, I would like to think that every psalm is my favorite psalm, uh, but this morning, Psalm 110 is my favorite psalm. Let's read it together. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are that you've given us this glorious description of our Redeemer and our Lord. And Lord, we ask that we might be willing, be volunteers in the day of thy power. We pray that you would exert your power over us and cause us to be willing. Lord, we confess our sins. We pray for forgiveness and cleansing. We pray that you would unite our hearts together to fear your name. Lord, we ask that you would accept our thanksgiving. Make us truly thankful by your grace. Don't cause this to be forced, but cause us to be truly from our hearts to be grateful for who you are, everything you do. Give us grace to love you more and love one another more. And Lord, give us, cause your gospel to be preached this morning in the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Lord said unto my Lord, 
Now, right off the bat, that tells us that David had some understanding of the Trinity, didn't he? He's talking about the Father. He says, the Father said to my Lord. In another place, he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David didn't understand the Trinity even any more than me or you understand it, but he believed it. You know, the believers in the Old Testament believe the same thing the believers in the New Testament do. No difference. And this is the scripture that the Lord quotes. And I can almost feel the delight in David's voice when he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thy foes thy footstool. Now, do you remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, came to the Lord and tried to make an issue over what do you think about government and paying of taxes? That's when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I love that beautiful answer. And then they tried to make an issue of uh, the end times. Uh, Whose uh, wife shall she be? She was married to seven different men. And the way he answered that, and then they tried to make an issue of the law, what's the greatest commandment? Now turn with me to Matthew 22 for a moment. Hold your finger there in Psalm 110. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, this is after they'd confronted him with those three different things, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? That's the issue of all issues. What do you think? What are your personal thoughts right now? When God looks into your heart, when he looks into my heart, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, the son of David. Verse 43, he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They thought we better just keep our mouth shut when we're around him. We obviously cannot deal with his wisdom and the things that he says. Now, if you and I can answer that question, we've learned the gospel. We've learned who he is. And that is the gospel. Peter used this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36. He quoted this in that very first gospel message. And David um, it's, it's said uh, by the writer to the Hebrews also, uh, uh, to which of the angels said he at any time, uh, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. From Psalm 110. Now, back to Psalm 110, the Lord 
Jehovah, God the Father, said unto my Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Now this is a, a statement I love making. He's the sitting Savior. I just love the imagery of that. He's the sitting Savior. Hebrews 1.3 says when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because the work of purging sins was finished, completed. The writer to the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, but this man, this man, he talked in the previous verse of the priest standing daily, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Standing, they didn't ever sit down because their work was never finished. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool for by one offering he hath what? Perfected forever them that are sanctified. Child of God, you've already been perfected forever, eternally, by this man who sat down at the right hand of God. In the tabernacle, there was no chair, but in heaven, there's a throne. And he's seated. And God says, sit at my right hand until I make your foes, your enemies, your footstool. Now, don't overlook this. The Lord Jesus Christ has enemies. That's a very scary, sobering thought. But the Lord Jesus Christ has enemies. People who, if it were in their power, they'd put him out of business. They'd rip him off his throne if they had the power to do it. Who are these people? Every unbeliever. Everyone who does not love him. This lack of love would, is, is hatred. Hatred of him as he is. And they would pull him from his throne, but they can't, can they? Not going to happen. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength or the scepter of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, the rod of thy or the scepter of thy strength. That's talking about his sovereign power. Oh, the power of Jesus Christ. Now, when... Uh, you see, uh, watch sports. You know, the guys get flexing their biceps, and you know that's silly. That doesn't have anything to do with power. When we're talking about the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're talking about his power to make sins not to be. That thrills my heart to think of my sins. David said, my sin is ever before me. He's made it to where it is not. Not simply covered, but not existent. Only omnipotence 
can do that. And omnipotence, the omnipotence, the rod of his strength, the scepter of his strength, the kingly power of his strength. Omnipotence has made me perfect in God's sight. Holy, unblameable, and unreprovable. The power of his cross. He is the power of God unto salvation. Now, notice he says, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. What is Zion? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 12, Zion is the church. The general assembly and church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. He sends the rod of his strength out of the church. Now the church, what we're doing right now, brings the message of the rod of his strength. What a blessed privilege it is to be in his church. Turn back to Psalm 87 for just a moment. Verse 2. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now he's talking about the gates, the public assembly of Zion more than all the private dwellings of Jacob. Oh, there's something powerful about the Lord bringing his people together to hear his gospel. Private worship is important. Public worship is more important. And if there's not public worship, there's not really private worship. And really the best private worship we have is when God enables us to hear the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, you know, when I'm hearing the gospel preached, that's when I know I'm a child of God. When I hear and believe the message that is preached. Uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And this is something that thrills a child of God to think of his rule. He doesn't have any rivals. He's, he's not disturbed by opposition. He's in absolute sovereign control, ruling and reigning right now. Aren't you glad? Aren't you thankful? Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now verse 3. Thy people. Well, who, is, who are his people? Short answer, the elect. The elect. Those he calls his people. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Those given to him by the Father, those he represents, the elect. Now, what's it say about his people? Verse 3, thy people shall be Willing. Volunteers. You remember when God said to Isaiah, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Now, 
in that statement, who am I going to draft? Who's going to volunteer? That's what that's saying. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah replied, here am I. Send me. Thy people shall be volunteers. Now, by nature, we're not volunteers because our will is controlled by sinful natures. Uh, the Lord said, you will not come to me that you might have life. By nature, we are not willing. And have you ever tried to make somebody willing? Can't do it, can you? You can lead a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. You can't make anybody willing. The glorious power of God is that he can actually make his people willing. That's just an amazing concept, isn't it? To make me willing? Now, you can make me do what I don't want to do. You know, a lot of my life is uh, made up of doing things I don't want to do. You're the same way. I mean, it, it's, I, that's just, we do what we should. But, but to be willing, volunteers, totally voluntary in the day of his power. The Lord's army is a draft and everybody that's drafted is volunteers. Thy people, willing. You know what Paul put it this way, to will is present with me. I would never sin again. I would be poor in spirit. I would mourn over my sin. I would be meek before God. I would hunger and thirst after righteousness. I would be pure in heart. I would be merciful. I would be a peacemaker. I would be persecuted for righteousness sake. That's what I want. For Christ's righteousness sake. I would take the lowest seat in the house. I would esteem you as better than me. I would. To will is present with me. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. It's only his omnipotence that makes us willing. But his, this is what only, only omnip, omnipotence can make somebody willing. And that's what he does. Thy people, are you willing to be saved by Christ? Are you willing to be saved by his sovereign grace? Are you willing to be saved by his righteousness only, where his righteousness is the only righteousness you have? Are you willing? Are you willing? In the beauties of holiness... Verse 3, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Now, what this is telling us is the Lord Jesus Christ never gets old. He never gets infirm. He always has the dew of his youth. The dew of his youth is on his brow all the time. He never gets old or worn out. What he was, he is. What he is, he always will be. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. Verse 4. 
The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, eternally after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek, this um, amazing figure that we're first introduced to him in Genesis chapter 14 after um, Abraham has rescued Lot and brought him back. Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God at that time. This was 400 years before the Levitical priesthood. The priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, comes and blesses Abraham. And he brings him bread and wine. Now since when does a priest bring bread and wine? The Lord Jesus Christ. This prefigures the Lord's table. He already accomplished his work. Now, turn with me for a moment to Hebrews 7. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, then in Psalm 110. That's the only time he, again he's mentioned in the Old Testament. And then again in Hebrews chapter 5, 6, and 7. But look in Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, or king of Jerusalem actually, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. First, being by interpretation, king of righteousness. After that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. Now, Melchizedek, first, king of righteousness. That's how I'm righteous, because he's the king of righteousness, and he gave me his righteousness, and that's my righteousness before God. That comes first. After that, king of peace. If I have perfect righteousness before God, I have peace. First, king of righteousness. After that, king of peace. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, who is the only one that fits that description? The Lord Jesus Christ. But made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now, some people thought, well, he's not the Son of God if he was made like unto the Son of God. Uh, I've heard people use that argument to say that Melchizedek was a figure of Christ, but not Christ himself. Well, the way I would answer that is in Daniel chapter 3, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the fourth like unto the Son of God. Was he the Son of God in the fire with the three children of Israel? When John saw one like unto the Son of Man, does that mean he wasn't the Son of Man? He was somebody else? No, obviously not. Um, made like unto the Son of God, abideth. Before time began, right now, he always will be. He abides. The high priest, continually. You see, he was my high priest before time began as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
And he abides my priest continually all the time, whether I'm aware of it or not. He still abides my high priest continually. You see, he's the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the altar. He's Melchizedek. The one who abides high priest continually. You see, Aaron and the Levitical priesthood never saved anybody. It represented uh, the Lord's salvation, but Aaron, I mean, Aaron was a, like me and you, he was a weak, sinful man, but Melchizedek, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He abides a priest continually. Right now, he is representing my interests before the Father and makes me perfect in God's sight. What a high priest we have. Back to Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, eternally, after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Levi or Aaron, but Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath he shall judge among the heathen he shall fill with the dead bodies he shall wound the heads over many countries he shall drink of the brook and the way therefore shall he lift up the head now I can remember when I would uh, read that it almost uh, sounds like when I was a kid I used to love to read Greek myths that lets you know how weird I am and you always had those angry, wrathful, vindicative, vengeful gods that were out to just smash everybody and get their vengeance on everybody. And somebody looks at this passage of Scripture and they might think, was the Lord like that? What I want us to remember is the Lord's wrath is a holy wrath, a just wrath, a perfect wrath. You know, we read in the book of Revelations of people calling out for the mountains and hills to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. It's kind of a scary uh, term, isn't it? The wrath of the Lamb. You don't think of a Lamb being wrathful? He is. He is because of his love for his Father, because of his ad absolute justice. And... He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He said that. The Father didn't send him to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But he came to save. And this glorious Savior, one time, he's going to exercise his wrath against all of his enemies. Now that time is coming. I, the door's open right now, but I think of the the parable of the foolish virgins when they, they didn't have any oil. Now you, I love, they look just like the wise virgins. You couldn't see the difference between the two. What was the difference? Something that one had that the other didn't have. The oil, the grace of God, the grace of the Spirit. Something you couldn't see. If you looked at them on the outside, they looked the same. But when the Lord comes and uh, the 
wise virgins are brought in and the foolish have gone out to find oil for the lamp. They come in and the door has been shut. And they say, open to us, open to us. And the Lord says, I, I don't know you. Now the time is coming when the door will be shut. Verse 7. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. He's always refreshed. That's what the imagery is. He's always refreshed. He drinks of the brook in the way, and he's always refreshed, always powerful, never worried, never troubled, always powerful, always fresh. Our Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. And you know what I want to be? I want to be one of these volunteers spoken of. Thy people, thy people should be volunteers in the day of thy power. I want to say with Isaiah, Lord, hear my, send me.